we discussed some difficult topics in this episode. So I just want to let you know, it might be triggering for sensitive listeners, but it's info that you'd want to have. Electrocast. Okay, it basically comes down to this. You have to forget everything your culture has told you about being a woman. And then you can begin your day. Hi, I'm Jill Sorensen, and you are listening to the new feminist podcast, The Place for Common Sense Feminism. So, today's episode hits particularly close to home. As a young woman, I worked as a fashion model in New York and Paris for many years. While it was a lucrative and glamorous career that let you travel all over the world, you basically had to learn to survive as prey. It was an industry inundated with predators of young women. At 18, when I first came to New York City, I moved in with John Casablanca, the owner of Elite Models and his wife. He was very charming and attentive. However, I soon learned that the reason my powerful boss brought me and my 16-year-old roommate cookies and milk, it was not out of kindness. At 43, he was sleeping with my roommate since she was 14. It, it was a well-known in the industry that he loved very young girls and that he slept with a few of them. Adults in the industry were silent. Even last year's Netflix documentary celebrated him calling it The Man Who Loved Women, when it perhaps would have been more accurately titled The Pedophile Who Loved Girls. <laughs> For decades, abuses within the modeling industry have gone unchecked, until now. While teenage fashion models in Paris, Carrie Otis and Ebba Carlson, suffered the same fate. They were both raped by Gerald Marie, John Casablanca's business partner and the former president of elite model management in Paris. Today, they're fueling the next wave of Fashion's Me Too movement with the official filing of a lawsuit against their rapist. Carrie and Ebba both documented their assaults by Gerald Marie in their respective books, Carrie in Beauty Disrupted and Ebba in True Starlight from Living in the Shadows to Being Stellar and The Currency of Love. However, Justice was never served. Gerald Marie has categorically denied the accusations, although people in the industry have known him as a predator for decades. Ebba and Carrie, they're in contact with women across the globe who have faced similar sexual misconduct or assault. Not only victims of Gerald Marie, also other predators within the fashion industry who raped, assaulted, and trafficked young teenage models. Their mission today is to help other survivors share their stories, bring justice to the victims, and stop the systematic abuse inside the modeling world. Well, thank you, Karen Ebba. I am so excited to have you on the New Feminist Podcast, and I cannot wait to hear your story. So I'm going to dive right into it. You are both part of a criminal investigation and a lawsuit, I think, against your old modeling agent in Paris, Gerald Marie. I know it's early in the morning, <laughs> but would you mind sharing your personal stories of what happened to you? I don't sure. know who wants to go first. What about you, Carrie? I'll jump in. Yeah, so this was 35 years ago. 
I actually first wrote about it in my book, Beauty Disrupted, in 2011, um, published by HarperCollins, and hadn't really talked to too much at length before I wrote about it in that book. Um, it was something that I carried with me for a long time. I think one of the things that changes my particular experience, although many women we now know have had the same or very similar experience with Gerald Marie, was that I was a minor when I was trafficked by elite modeling agency from San Francisco to New York, and then from New York directly to Gerald Marie and to Gerald Marie's to stay in his apartment. How old were you? I was 17. I think I first got to Paris at 16, and then this happened between 16 and 17, I believe. But I was under 18. I already had sort of a, a setup of being a dropout of school. I was a kid on the streets. I didn't have money of my own. And so as many of us remember, the agents would pay for our flights, pay for our hotels, pay for everything. And so when we began to make money, we never got paychecks, or at least a lot of the girls and women that I worked with, there was no transparency in terms of financial do I remember this? God, right? Like the fight to get your, just to get paid. It was insane. So I was really at a disadvantage because I didn't have any mentors. I didn't have adults in my life. And as we know, you know, it was um, the New Faces division in New York that sent me to Paris. And I look at this situation and there were so many that were complicit. And I look at the bookers that were in Paris that knew damn well what was happening and didn't say anything. So I was in Gerald's apartment. I was sent to go stay at his apartment. I didn't have proper winter clothes. I was cold. It was, I'm from California. It was like, you know, winter in France, which is. Gerald Marie, he owned Elite Models. Yeah. So at that point it was Elite Plus, right? powerful guy. He was a powerful dude. Yeah. And I think it was right when Elite was buying Perry Plus. So they were just starting to make that sort of negotiation where um, Perry Blue then became Elite Plus. So I was sent there and I just remember over the weeks that I was there becoming more exhausted, more sort of neurotic, fearful. It was really tough if you can remember being a model at a young age in Paris, France, especially if you came from the United States. You didn't speak French. You were trying to navigate the metro system. Like everything was completely new and overwhelming. And we would go out and have to hit the streets for our castings like early in the morning and go late into the evening. And a lot of these castings were actually in apartments, right? They were in the photographer's apartment. <laughs> so it was just this like constant like exhaustion of not knowing what end was up and definitely not being like successful at all. I mean, I was just like in the grind of it. And I remember it was one evening that I had come back and I was exhausted and I was frozen and I was coming down with a cold and, you know, creepy, creepy, creepy. But most of the women, when they went to go stay at Gerald's apartment, had to stay in his daughter's little room. And it was his little daughter's room. And it was a really like weirdly small room with a super tiny bed and the circular window, like super sparse. And so I remember just like falling into that bed and just like being homesick and just like so freaked out and sad and exhausted. 
What, did Joe? he have a girlfriend at this time? Mm -hmm. Yes, he did. So that was Linda Evangelista was the woman in the house at that time. Prior to that, it was Christine Bolster. And prior to that, it was Lisa Rutledge. And I know the succession of women because most of all their clothes were still in there. It was just like, it was so, it was so awful. Um, but this one night I went to sleep and I literally woke up with Gerald on me and he was forcing himself on me. He raped me in that moment. I remember the the oddest things. I remember the rain. I remember his curls like there. And this is so many women I know speak of remembering these like these things, especially being in that bed. So that was the first, that was the first assault. And I learned very, very quickly that if I did not comply to some extent, I wasn't going to work. I, not only I wasn't going to work, I wasn't going to have a roof over my head. I mean, it was so blatant. It was so blatant. And like many survivors, there was an absolute point of sort of PTSD disassociation, dissociation that happened for me in that moment. And it was right after that that Gerald began giving me vials of cocaine to keep my weight down, to keep me going on my castings. So it was really sort of like a disembodied time for me. Wow. Yeah, I have so many follow-up questions, but Ebba, let's hear your... Uh, yeah. Oh my gosh, it's hard to follow up on that story. I get teary eyes right now, but... um I don't think I've heard the whole story before. My heart is breaking. It's and just uh, that lost innocence. I feel so much love for Carrie. She's like my big sister. I know. <laughs> she's the best. Uh, that she's much older. She's just like one year. <laughs> so like more like twin sisters. Totally. Um, soul. <laughs> uh, soul sisters for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, wow. Where do I start? So it was 1990. I was 20 years old. I had a work, I worked at the body shop, which is like a English company that sells body and hair products. I had a beautiful boyfriend who I was very much in love with. And, uh, you know, I was young. I didn't really know what to do. I spent a lot of time in Stockholm in the inner city with a lot of models. And I did a little modeling then, but not a lot. I was very shy, actually. And um, my boyfriend was a dancer and he was like, we were you know, hanging out with the artists and that kind of stuff back in the days. And I was approached by a scout that, wow, um, well, Abba, you're so cute and you should be a model. Are you not working yet? That you should really come to France and work because I have a job for you if, if you want. And he had a guy in Monaco who was a designer for swimsuits. And I was very hesitant at first. And then I said, well, maybe I should give it a shot. So I kind of did some research about this guy. I checked with some model agencies and they said like, well, he's a freelancer, but they knew of him, you know, a little bit. So I said, what the heck? I can just go there over my vacation for two weeks, give it a shot. Because of course I was vain. I wanted to be the next Cindy Crawford. And uh, <laughs> so I went, I only had one way ticket. And that was of course stupid of me too. But I... I I was adventurous. I like to do things. I, I was curious. So I said bye to my boyfriend. I arrived, you know, at Nice. I took the bus to Monaco and I stood and waited where we had decided to meet. What, in Monaco? Yeah, um, yeah in Monaco. That's where it all started. This guy didn't come, so I could call from a photo booth and then he came, picked me up and it turned out there was no job for me uh, because they had canceled this uh, or they didn't cancel it. They, they had just done it. So I spoke a little bit of French. So they said, like, why don't you be our secretary? And I was like, no, that's not what I want to be. I, I was promised a job. 
So eventually that led to us not getting a job there, but he said, let's go to Cannes. I have a friend there. We went to Cannes and there was nobody there. And he said, that's okay. We can just stay at the back of the house of the pool house. But there was no pool house. There was a pool shack. And when I opened the door, it was a dirty mattress on the floor with dirty sheets. And I like, what the heck is this? (laughs) This is so weird. I wanted to trust this guy. So, you know, he had started to groom me, like trying to be interested in me. And eventually he raped me in that pool shack. It's so hard to describe how you just don't run away because I could have. I could have taken myself and run off, I guess. But I was in his grip of surviving and trying to make the next day. So that happened. And I also discovered he had a false passport. And that freaked me out. So he was not the person he said he was. And uh, then I like I got to call my parents to say that I'm okay, so they know where I am. So we went to another phone booth and called. And of course, he was outside listening. And they freaked me out, so I didn't want to tell them. But I didn't want to tell them because not only because I was afraid, I was, you know, proud. I didn't want to tell them that I had made a fool out of myself and gone on this trip and this, you know, so I, I contained myself. I'm like, I'm going to get through this. So I just, how do I, what do I do? So I said to this guy called David, the scout, you promised me a job. What are you going to do about it? And he said, well, we're going to go to Paris. Well, how did you deal with what he, what he did, did to you? Or did you not even, I, at the time? you were just frozen. I was totally frozen. And I was like survival mode. Yeah. I need to get out of here. And what do I do to get out of here? So I played along to see what was going to happen. And of course, I did tell him I didn't want to have sex with him. And I said, I have a boyfriend and everything. But he insisted and persisted at the end. It happened. And I didn't fight because I was scared. We came to Paris and then we had a casting at Mall Agency called Champagne. Nothing happened there because the owner was gay. So I was like, oh, relieved (laughs) so I could sleep at his house. I'm not very tall. I'm only 5'6". And I was pretty athletic. So at that time, they didn't really want the athletic type. So they said, you got to lose weight. And I'm like, oh, because I was like 53 kilos, which is, I don't know how many pounds that is. It's not a lot. But they wanted me to be thinner. So he said, uh, that's not going to work, but you could be my secretary. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I can be oh a secretary. God. Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually David said, well, I have a casting for you at Delete. Gerald was there and he met me. And I just remember going in through the doors and seeing all the, the agents, the bookers on the side. And that I recall so well because how they looked at me, like from really like, who's she? And like they knew something was going on. And as soon as I got into his office, he turned the blinds down. It was in the middle of the day. So I thought that was so funny. Why would he do that? Oh, this is making me so pissed off. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> I, I remember some of this. Yeah. 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 And I, I feel it in home. I bought it telling you yeah. about it. Um, so that's the first thing he did was to turn the blinds. And then he started this conversation for, for at least one and a half hour. What do you want in your life? What are you thinking? And p- like pushing, like asking me, like 
what do you want to do? How are you going to make money? Da, 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 like that. I'm like, well, I was interested in medicine. It's like, are you going to be a brain surgeon? <laughs> kind of. Was like really aggressive. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then eventually pulled out all these portfolios with the girls. And he showed me famous models and, and especially Swedish ones. And he said, do you know these? And I said, of course. And he said, do you know what they did to earn like six figures? And I'm like, no. I mean, oh. of course they worked hard, right? And then he's like, digitally raped me with his fingers as up my vagina what yeah <laughs> and, and that's when I felt decapitated my I just that's when I totally froze I just what the fuck just happened it was like you know when you painted up a picture of this what's going to happen I'm going to be famous I'm going to have this and you know you paint this beautiful picture of you think what it's going to be like and that's just totally destroyed at that instant you just freeze and it's like Somebody just rips your soul out. Hmm. And everybody and, probably sat on the other side of that room and yep. exactly what was going on. I yep. mean, oh, so, so that's when I pulled away. Uh, I, I spoke French. He said, I'm going to give you this movie role. Da, 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 da. You're perfect for this role. And so I was like, okay, let me think about it, I said. And then I just went out of there. I just sat on a bench and cried for hours. Uh, I just didn't know what to do. And later we were invited to his apartment for a casting. And I was, I think, the first woman or girl to come there. And uh, we were, I don't know if he, it was him, maybe Claude Haddad. Maybe oh, I remember even, him too, yep. Maybe oh. even Jean-Luc Bernard. I'm not sure, but when I see his face, there were three men there. And one was the scout for sure. So... Girls started coming out from his apartments, and I was definitely the oldest one. And I felt like I needed to take care of these girls. Like some of them didn't even speak English or French. They were from Eastern countries. They could hardly talk, you know. They were sick. And then we had to get naked and walk in high heels. I mean, with our underwear on and on the line. Oh, freaking creeps. Yeah. So, and I'm like, why do we have to get undressed? That's stupid. Well, we have to see your boobs because we, we want to know they're not saggy. Um, so that's also when we signed some kind of contract. I remember how you fill out your details and everything. This was via Elite? Yeah, but it was in his apartment. Mm. After that, we went to Bandouche, the nightclub. Because I remember meeting some Swedish girls there and telling them about it. But also I told somebody... On the street, I met some a friend in Paris who I knew, and I told him a little bit what had happened. And he was like, oh, my gosh, do you need help? And I said, yeah, maybe. Uh, and then the scout came and said, who are you talking to? And I'm like, well, he's my friend from Sweden. What, what did you tell him? And then my friend told the scout, you have to be really careful with Abba because if something happens to her, you know. And then the scout pulled me away and I go, don't ever lie to anybody again. You know, you don't know who I know. I know the head of police of Paris. I can have you killed. Oh, I saw you when I hear this. I'm so lucky that my first agent, when I started in Paris, I was in Paris for a few months before New York. They were Swedish. There were two Swedish women and one gay guy. And I mean, they protected you and thank God, because I know these guys, these, this is like a group of creeps. How did that affect your life? What belief did you end up with about yourself? For me, I totally froze. Like I didn't want to have any contact. So when I got back, actually I successfully lied and got the ticket back home. I forgot to say that. 
So I got my ticket back home and I met my boyfriend. He couldn't even touch me, of course, because I freaked out. It took forever until I told him. And when I finally did, he was so angry. He actually found the scout and punched him down. So Good. he went to the hospital. <laughs> yeah, that was a relief. But it was also terrifying because I thought they would come after me. Mm -hmm. So I had to go through actually years of therapy, but I I didn't know it until I actually went into therapy because I closed off. My heart was closed off. I was scared of men. I took like, what, how do you say? Like um, when you go far away from people to not see men, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So definitely I had to go through a lot of therapy. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast. What about you, Carrie? Yeah, um, it took me a long time, like decades to get back in my body and be able to be in like in an authentic relationship, to be intimate in any way. For me, it resulted in drug addiction. It resulted in eating disorders, um, a 20-year battle with anorexia of which resulted in heart surgery when I was 30, So it had a huge impact and similar to Ebba, really didn't realize um, how deeply it, it wounded me. And in part because from that moment of dissociation onward for so long, it was like this part of me lived over there and, and wasn't integrated into who I am in any way. And, and similar to so many of the women that I've spoken with and, and hearing their journeys, it's like this whole collective wake up right now of so many of us just had to say, that's normal. That's what happens. That's what happens in the industry. You tolerate it. It was so blatant. It was so gross to be publicly objectified in that way, to be spoken about like you weren't even in the room, but you were right there and a piece of meat to be paraded around like and weighed publicly at, at Gerald in Gerald's office in front of everybody. There was so much shame and humiliation and degradation. And so it really just got so deep into so many of us that really it's like now as as we all start to wake up and wake up and wake up, we're able to say that was anything but fucking normal, right? That was and anything it, but exactly. And but it was so it was our basic. world. So oh my god. Realize how sick it was. I remember going on a casting, there was a notorious uh, lesbian Odile at French L. Oh, I remember. (laughs) And you would, like, all the girls would go there. Yeah, well, we would have to completely strip and, like, walk the hall. And it was, like, really unbelievable. How many times? Oh, yeah, completely. Like, how many times that was required? Required of us? Like, 
And me, I was a minor, but it doesn't matter what age that that's like a job or a casting requirement. You don't even have the job, but you got to get naked. Like, what the fuck? If you weren't a human, you were a piece of meat. Completely. Absolutely. Who do you think was the perfect victim? And how do you think these modeling agents chose who to pick on or who to rape or, or to traffic? You know, one of the things that so many of the survivors have spoken about, and it's become clearer and clearer, is there were the money makers and then there was us. They didn't, for the most part, fuck with the money makers. And if they were coming from like an agency like Eileen Ford, right, in New York, who there would be repercussions for their behavior, they weren't going to deal with that either. So there was a bunch of us that were at a disadvantage. We were young. We couldn't speak the language. We were runaways. We were already not broken, but wounded, like already came in with some sort of wounding. And I think it was pretty, it was pretty clear. And I also believe with these predators, if it was iffy, they were going to try it. If, if you were like, they couldn't quite tell who you were. and They, they tried they everyone. Tried. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but what yes. do you think? Yeah, I definitely think so too. Like I look at myself and because I, I was a courageous girl, I would say, but I was vulnerable in that sense that I believed in the good in people and I trusted that. So I was used constantly because of this and many other ways as well, not only by these people. And even when I got back and the rumors started, oh, she did it herself. She wanted to, she... The scout spread this rumor, like, well, she wanted it. Oh, yeah, you got blamed. Yeah, it yeah, was I'm like, girl, so, so typical in Texas. You know, yeah, so I think I had to fight that too, defend myself in that sense. So I, I truly think that the women that I've seen that were similar, that went through in Sweden, similar destiny, they all had some kind of, of longing, though, of being heard and seen and um, understood. Because I don't think that if I hadn't had that, I wouldn't have gone on a thing like that. It was my longing for acknowledgement, for somebody to see me. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, uh, I think, if I had listened to that, you know, my inner self at that time, that wouldn't have happened. And I didn't. I didn't have that contact then. And we were so young. I mean, I when I first came to live in New York, I ended up living with John Casablanca and his wife. She was from Denmark and he was so flattering and kind to his wife. They had a five-year-old son. And I thought, oh, he's so charming. What a nice guy, right? Then I asked to move next door. I lived with four girls next door, Cindy Crawford also being one of them and a few girls who became very well known. And he would come over and bring us cookies and milk as we're sitting there with like our sip medicine on. Oh, that's so nice. I thought, oh, he's so nice. He's bringing us cookies and milk. (laughs) <laughs> Only wow. <laughs> later for me to find out that he was sleeping with my 16-year-old roommate when he was 42 years old and he'd been dating her since 14. You don't have to be the victim to be affected for life. Yeah. Because a man that could be so loving to his wife and look how beautiful she is. And I thought, oh, he's among all these beautiful models, but he fawns over his wife. But in reality, he was the worst of all like who were these perpetrators yeah and and there's so many well within the industry too it's like 
the usual suspects. There was definitely a ring of men that I believe work together. And the more that we dig in and the more that we hear from other survivors, we hear about the human trafficking, hands down. And then we look at Epstein's involvement and Epstein's involvement with John Luke. There was a ring of top guys that were supplying nightclubs, billionaires, arms dealers, drugs dealers with the women that they represented as models. Yeah. And most of the time, the models had no idea that money was exchanging hands to get them into Le Bandouche, right? Into the VIP section. I had no idea. I didn't even know that. Absolutely. The agents were paid by the club owners to supply their clubs with the young girls. And so that's why we all girls. Yes. That's that's why why we all got into the VIP section. (laughs) Yes, totally. Totally. We didn't have to wait in line. Yeah. Yeah. So they got money. We were, we were a pawn. And if we just got sold off to the clubs, there were women that went into far worse situations. I mean, literally one of us was sold to a Saudi arms dealer for two years by Gerald Marie. I heard Um, those stories. Yeah. So it's, More and more, we're identifying that this industry is used as a means for human trafficking. And the girls that weren't making money, I remember, suddenly were sent to Adnan Khashoggi's party on Fifth Avenue. And I heard from other people, not from people in the industry, but people outside of the industry who knew that the exchanges happened. These guys probably had families and kids of their own and their conscience. Oh, yes. Basically, yeah. you were a piece of me. Yeah. yeah, and if you weren't a moneymaker, then you were sucking on the agency, right? You were a drain on the agent and agency, and that's why we would be pawned off elsewhere. Yeah, yeah and you could also tell when some of these new girls came in, and if some girls were more naive than others, yeah. or scared than others, yeah. alone in a foreign country. I just remember the energy you felt of, oh, this is bad. Something is happening to this girl. Yeah. But it was, you were so busy with your life. It was all around us. It's not until now when you start deciphering. Yep. You have to break it down. Mm -hmm. You have to totally break it it down. It's taken so many years to realize. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So sexual harassment was part of everyday life as a model in the 90s. How did you deal with it back then? It was everywhere. If I think of myself, a lot of times I would always deflected with humor find all kinds of ways did you have any ways that you dealt with it Carrie you go ahead answer this yeah I had to normalize it I had to honestly act as if it was just like this is just what happens this is totally normal behavior so there were times where I would ignore it and then there was definitely a part of me that was so wounded as a young girl that confusion of when somebody says oh you're hot you're gorgeous and that somebody's acknowledging me, somebody sees me, somebody likes me, somebody thinks I'm beautiful. Finally, somebody thinks I'm beautiful. And I believe this is part of the grooming process too. Like in New York, it was so perfect. All the rejection I went through, right? All the rejection I went through set me up for when one person was like, you, you're going to get this job or you're incredible. It was the perfect setup for gobbling that up and just being like, grateful for some fucking attention. So I think there was like that very typical grooming of like pushing your self-esteem so far down that by the time you did get some sort of flattery, you were 
desperate for it in some way, shape or form. And so I can acknowledge that now and see that now and see that as really classic textbook sort of grooming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just remember feeling, especially when I was in Paris and I was so alone, I felt really alone there. And I met this American guy in a bar, I think. And he's like, well, do you want to go have tea and we can talk? And I said, like, sure. And I really like wanted to trust him. Like I needed a friend <laughs> to his apartment. And the first thing he wants to do is have sex. I'm like, what the fuck do, do I have? Yeah. Like, does it say sex in my forehead or what? Like, and I think, <laughs> I think that was, something that happened to me again. And I remember there was this other scout in in Stockholm that I ended up with. And he too was the same. I saw like the pattern of of, uh, being in your energy and expressing yourself was something that I had to close down because apparently people wanted to use that or abuse that. And I didn't know how to have boundaries because I probably thought that if I have boundaries, then... I won't be loved or I won't be received. I don't know. It was just this mix. And if you had boundaries in that industry, you weren't going to work. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> a job. Yeah. yeah. Nobody else would. Yeah. You know, it was hard. People thought when you were modeling, oh, she must feel so great about herself. You know, she's this and that. She makes money, good looking, whatever. And what you didn't realize this, like you were always insecure. You'd go to work and you felt like pretty good about yourself. And then you wanted to be successful and then every single woman you worked with was way prettier you know yeah. and you were only valued for your look totally. never once for what you said so it was it was a hard industry to survive in I yeah. think um, I don't know how you but for me after that incident I couldn't go back to modeling it's like every man would just be a horror so I did some small works, like commercial jobs after that, but that's when I put it on the shelf. You share these stories from a number of years ago, and I wanted to know what triggered you to seek justice now? Well, I can just say for me to seek justice was when I wrote my spiritual memoir and I got in contact with Carrie. And then um, she was kind of my mentor as I wrote this chapter in my book, True Starlight. And after that, when I got in contact with her, that's how I got in contact with a journalist that started interviewing me. And that's how it was for me. Yeah, for me, it was it was actually much more excruciating than I thought. And when I wrote my book a decade ago, nobody wanted to talk about this, this subject at all. And it was quite staggering to me. And, and I also let that be okay. It was super cathartic and important for me to tell my story. However, that was totally different than fast forward in 2017, I was contacted by Lisa Brinksworth, who has been a champion for all of us and an incredible journalist and was the journalist who had the documentary for the BBC and the BBC and elite to the BBC, but it was basically completely showcasing John Casablanca's behavior, Gerald's behavior, all of this. But Lisa got in touch with me in 2017, knowing I had written my book, knowing that I had this story. And we spoke about what could we ever do? What could we do? And it was too early at that time. Fast forward to Me Too movement, right? So there's much more conversation. Women are wanting to have conversations about this subject matter. And Lisa got back in touch with me and just said, would you be willing to offer your testimony to the investigation in Paris, France? And at first I was like, 
why would I want to do that now? Why would I even want to open that can of worms? I've already said what I needed to say and nobody cared then 10 years ago. Nobody cared anyway. Who started this investigation? Anne-Claire Lejeune, who also is the lawyer that's representing victims against Jean-Luc Brunel and has also been the one to tie Jean-Luc Brunel to Epstein. So for me, it was like, I remember calling, talking with Abba, and we would speak over the years, like, what do you think? Do you think, are you going to go for it? Are you not? Like, what are the risks? Could we be sued? Could somebody come after me? Are we going to get death threats? Like, where could this go? And Abba, when you were like, Abba said, I'm all in. And I just went, (laughs) I'm not going to be like hanging out here. I'm like, okay, I am all in. But it was much more emotional than I anticipated, writing my testimony, submitting it, and then having this period of knowing that Gerald was going to be served. Yeah. All of our testimonies. And ultimately, you know, the reason for, for most of our desire to do this is to support other victims that are within the statute to come out because the fact still remains, Gerald has been working in the modeling industry up to date as, uh. as you know, with We Management, which is his his company. So yeah. it was really for that desire of supporting others to be able to come forward and knowing they're not alone. It yeah. was scary because yeah. Jeff Epstein had just committed suicide before and we would live with that story of of uh, Virginia and her story and what had happened. So I think we got to take the risk to put ourselves yeah. out there. Who are we going to meet and are we going to get death threats, you know? Um, mm-hmm. It was very scary, but also very empowering. Like knowing that totally empowering. the story is out there now. Mm-hmm. I don't care anymore. It's more important that we can help people, that justice is being served than my own fear. Screw yeah. it, you know? <laughs> it's never too so, late for the truth and for justice. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. You've started a website called Victorious Angels where other victims came forward. Can, can you share about that? So when Abba and I first came out, we realized that there was going to be a tremendous amount of press. And he was served on a Friday. And then on Sunday, the Times UK dropped a massive expose that just went completely global. And it was at that point, Abba and I were like, wait, how are people going to find us? How's press going to find us? And how are other women going to find us? So we created Victorious Angels, and it really is a collective and a platform and a community for other survivors to come out and find support and resources, both through the Model Alliance as well as through us. It's a place where survivors can also connect with Anne-Claire Lejeune if they're ready to offer testimony. And if they're not, they can also do that completely anonymously because really what we're doing is building the case, building the evidence. They can also come on board and speak with our lawyer in the United States, John Clune, um, who will be representing us in, we're just also trying to figure out what type of lawsuit against, is it Gerald, is it a leech? We're looking at these details right now. So really, it was a platform for other survivors to come forward to be able to share their stories as well as get support. And this is just a Gerald Marie or Jean-Luc, it's the whole group of 
slimy men. It really is the whole <laughs> I'm sorry. slimy men. It's yeah, no. all of them. One of the things that you know we all know is Gerald represents one small piece of yeah. a bigger problem in picture. So where, of course, the survivors want justice with Gerald, he is a part of a much bigger problem. Mm. Yeah, and it all started with Gerald, apparently, you know, it has evolved into something larger. How many victims have you? You said now. You've spoken to a lot, Carrie. Yeah, I have. So I'm not sure if we're near 16 or 18 that have given testimony, but I've spoken with a lot more that aren't ready to go on the record. Either they have family members that are still deeply tied to aspects of this industry or they're really frightened. A lot of the women I've spoken with in Europe are frightened for their lives. This is a really big deal. So we were on one call with a lot of survivors and one of the women was like, you know, if you do the math and this is conservative, there could be 600 of us. There's a lot. I mean, this was oh, one yeah. of the things that I realized with the intakes of other women is that the way that our rapes took place, it was serial rape. He's a serial rapist. It happened the same way with all of us that were in that bed of his daughter. Oh, it's so hard to um, understand. Yeah. So we've spoken about this a little bit already, but what did the agents and modeling bookers do? Do you think they were aware or do you think this behavior was so normalized that no one paid it? Oh, this fires me up so yes. much because I've just like, <laughs> I mean, there are so many Ghislaine Maxwells within this. So many, and I'm not going to name names yet because I am still holding out that these bookers will speak up. Because if there ever was a moment for, for fucking retribution and for redemption, like it's really, it's now. And it blows my mind how many, I mean, I have a lineup and names of so many bookers that put me in harm's way, that knew damn well where they were sending me from castings to agents to to islands with photographers that were complete fucking predators. Gerald was not my only rapist. And the humiliation and the laughter and the cajoling that happened after sexual assault where everyone on set knew exactly what had happened and it was a fucking joke to them still goes on. I mean, we've got Terry Richardson. We've got, there's a whole slew of people who they're notorious. And why in an industry do we have to continue to like protect the predators and keep silent about, and many of them still are working and hired by some of the biggest brands in the industry. I think they treated some of these top photographers or agent owners like gods too. Yeah, so I was on a set with Oliviero Toscani. I don't know if he's still alive. In Rome, I'm 19 years old, and it's me and another girl. And the whole time, he rages at us. He calls me blondie, her chocolatina, total disgusting, misogynist, racist, everything you can think of. And all the 50 men on set for three days laughed at us in tears and wow. and that was a job to covet right to work to work with him though if you were an up-and-coming oh. model that was a score if you could they, get in front of his camera right and they mm. rather get rid of you and your sob story yeah. and stick with that guy but i don't know if he's still working but that guy should have been out that's how they out. see gerald in paris like he's a big celebrity so yeah 
got the status and we go against something much, much bigger than just a normal guy. Yeah. What advice do you have to young girls today how to deal with sexual harassment? Well, first of all, you have to find a safe place where you can speak, where you know you're heard and trust your own instincts. Go to an organization like Model Alliance, for instance, or there are so many different organizations that listen to you and tell you where to go. And starting to share your story where you feel safe. And from then on, there are many, many different things that you can do, of course, to heal. And you will be healed. I think it's really important, definitely for models within the industry to realize that there are resources that there weren't ever resources. Like if, you know, Jill, all of us, if we were harassed or assaulted on our job, there was no place to report that. And that's actually different today. So the Model Alliance has its support line and everything from lack of transparency, your agent won't pay you, sexual harassment or assault on a job, reporting photographers that are like acting predatory on a set. There's actually a place to report that and follow through, which is incredible progress. And and on that note, it's like so pathetic because in any other industry, this is a requirement, right? You have human resources, you have a code of conduct and ethics, like kids are protected. If you're a minor, like you can't work past certain hours and why this industry is still totally unregulated for the most part is beyond But that being said, like, go check out the Model Alliance, sign up there. There are amazing resources there. One of the biggest thing is to know when it starts, you have to learn how to trust your instincts. If somebody says, get undressed, and it doesn't feel good, you shouldn't do it. I mean, it's to be aware of where are my own limitations? Am I ready to take my top off and show my body why? And so we have to start asking ourselves these questions as girls or men or whomever. Nobody has the power over you that we should give away our own power or our own serenity to somebody. It's crucial that we learn how to say no and honor that within ourselves. So I think that's really the, where it needs to start first. Why do I do this? And how far am I ready to go? Yeah. Where my own limits are. Yeah, yeah. All, all the castings and it's for like uh, deodorant and they're like, everybody get naked. <laughs> and, and then they invite their friends in to look and then they keep the videos and probably send them around. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. but yes. And by Carrie and I have chatted a lot about this before. What's really pissing us off is <laughs> New York Fashion Week. For example, in 2018, they let porn star Ron Jeremy walk the runway. A man who has a total of 35 charges of rape by 23 victims. Some were by minors whom he prodded with porn objects while unconscious. Why would a German fashion brand be allowed to have him walk the runway of the New York Fashion Week? What? Yeah, you just, you go back to like, where's the accountability within this industry? And and who is the higher up that's looking the other way to allow that to take place? It's abominable. What message is the fashion industry selling? Mm. It's so different, different cultures, right? But like if we're a Swedish person this is so 
weird. But when <laughs> just look at Italy and look at the prime ministers of Italy, how they've been using sex as a way of power and, and showing off. It's a sign of power to have a lot of women around you and sex and God knows what. So it's such a different culture. And we have to know that that's where Paris and Milan are the centers of fashion. It used to be, and now it's New York, but it all derived from that energy of, I don't know, man chauvinism. I don't know what else to call yeah. it. Yeah, definitely. So in another sexist gender offender is Black Tape Project. It's a male Miami designer who puts S&M bondage style tape on young models that barely even covers their private parts. He sends them naked down the runway, pretending it's being sold at like bathing suits, right? And I was so horrified to see these poor girls sent down the runway naked and so completely aggressively objectified in a violent sexual way. And then the New York, as some New York Times female journalist wrote only in her review of it, oh, I hope I'm brave enough to wear that to the beach. I mean, like, <laughs> with zero concern for young women's safety. And why do you think a female fashion journalist would be so blind to what they're exposing these girls to? I believe this has been so normalized mm-hmm. and through the industry, through all of these industries, but definitely through the modeling industry where premature sexualization, objectification, all of this is being pushed forth in advertisement, in movies, in commercials. In magazines, you look at how it's also promoted and glorified the whole rape culture, the whole porn culture, right? So it's just this whole mess. And look at the channels that it it has access to to push out this messaging that so desensitizes this. And we know Dr. Gail Dine speaks about, mm-hmm. about all of this and really blows the lid off of how predisposed, how normalized. And so, yeah, now we have women that aren't even questioning the absurdity of somebody like this promoting this at New York Fashion Week, which once upon a time was a fucking respectable, like one of the hardest shows to get into. And now like Ron Jeremy's walking and now- You hate a porn hub collaboration with someone wow. of a feminist when it, it yeah. Wow. I mean, that's just it's crazy. It's just like, I, but it's through history, this has really been- yes accumulating it's like the emperor's new clothes that yes, just look at that yes. story that's exactly we've been teaching our kids yep. through the stories we are actually part of this everybody's part of this because we're asleep we're so programmed to believe that this is the reality we're living in and as you say we've been normalized our children are normalized and and as we wake up as you start the conversation an hour ago almost now, we have to wake up to who we are and we're responsible. We are the creators. We cannot blame anybody for this. We have to stop with ourselves. We now all have to wake up and we have to speak out and we have to see things for what it is and to make a change because no one else is going to. (laughs) So true. You have to start with ourselves. So the fashion pages create trends and that if those trends are successful, that becomes our culture. How would you like the fashion industry to be more responsible? Great question. Good role models, right? What is a good role model? Where do we want to be in 10 years? How do we want our world to look like? Who do we want to be? We kind of have to take that to the future because we're all responsible for creating. We're co-creators of this world. so. 
how can we every day make better choices that are aligned with this purpose? What actions do we need to take every day with ourselves? Am I honoring myself in all the choices that I'm doing? And how can I inspire people, not telling them and judging them what to do, because that's playing the game, right? Can we inspire the model? Well, of course, we can stop buying their products. That's a really I good like, idea. like in Sweden, how they flag the sexist ads. If it's too sexist yes, for a woman, they flag it. Yes. I mean, that's, maybe something like that. Yeah. I think that's definitely one way. And, and I think we're seeing movements happening, especially in Sweden. Yeah. What do you think, Carrie? I feel that the fashion industry needs to be held accountable. And the fashion industry also needs to abide to codes of conduct and regulations that every other industry is beholden to. I recognize that this industry as of yet is basically completely unregulated. And so I see it as just imperative that there needs to be regulations. And I don't find that those regulations can come from inside the industry itself. That's one of the reasons why I've worked with the Model Alliance and I'm on the leadership council there that so far of all the people that have potentially put programs forward that actually could regulate this industry, the Model Alliance does have one program called the Respect Program. And it's going to take several people signing on in this moment where Victoria's Secret has been taken down, where Owen Mooney has called out another designer, pedophile, predator, right? There's so many groups coming out where there is a scream, like a war scream, and also a call to action that this industry needs to be held accountable. And so one of the ways that I see that happening is by us getting signatures to sign, basically, the yeah. program. And, and just even mm-hmm. hearing you mention Victoria's Secret, hello, <laughs> who thinks a bunch of girls walking down the runway in underwear with the wings, like virgin angels? What the <laughs> <fuck>? <laughs> oh, It's also ridiculous. I know, it's I know. Right? Ridiculous. Candy for the baby boys out there. Yeah, it's I mean, it's like fucking pathetic. Seven virgins? Yes. No, no more. But it's really the whole playing games, right? With yeah. um, with a female energy and, and how the sacredness of the female energy has been abused and used. Yeah. And it's really time for yeah, it to change. It's time for us to wake up. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So as the fashion world seems to finally be facing its own Me Too, what would you like to see happen? I mean, we might have spoken about this, but what changes would you like to see in the future besides from what you already told me? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, for uh, me, yeah. For me, it's just so important. You know, it's fashion me too, but as Owen Mooney just said, it's also for the men, for the boys, for the trans, for the queer, for all of our other friends out there. It's us too. It's not just happening to women. And this industry needs to be a safe place for its workforce. Definitely. And I I so agree. I have a 19-year-old daughter who wants to be a model now, and she's the same age, you know, when I started. And as much as I want to support her, and I want to cry because it's so... Mm. Oh, it makes me cry. (laughs) It's so strong because her longing to be out there, and she's like, I want to be a model who makes a difference. And she could. She's beautiful, and she's got that talent in front of the camera. But I wish the world would be holding space for her beauty, for all women's beauty, for all men's beauty, that we could create a model world where actually this is something 
that is honorable, that is not about the physicality, but it's about an expression of art where women can be honored, men can be honored because of their of beauty, of, of the beauty of the world, and that they have safe contracts, that they have people who respect them and who are put there to take care of these girls and boys. Mm -hmm. And that is my dream, that we could have that artistic, yeah. because we need art. It's not that we should stop having models. It's not about that. It's it's just that but, stop the blatant sexualization everything. Yes, everything. yeah, yes, totally. so, Yeah, yeah, just respect the individual and, mm -hmm. and creativity. I just want to say both of you, thank you so much for coming here, for sharing your stories, your painful stories. And uh, thank you so much for the amazing work you're doing to make a change and help other women. And I really, really hope that you will keep coming back on here and share as this progresses and absolutely, you absolutely. the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you, thank so, you much. so much. Thank you, love thank you, Abba. Love, love you too. <laughs> if you like this episode, make sure to share it with your friends. For info and links on our guests, go to our website, thenewfeminist.net and make sure to subscribe. We always love to hear from you. If you have someone you think we should speak to, let us know. And make sure to follow on Instagram at The New Feminist Official. We'll be back in two weeks with a new podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Jill Sorensen. Thanks for listening. Our producers are Sienna Jackson and Jill Sorensen. Our executive producers are Mark Netter and Peter Rafelson. Our editor is Lucy Baker Swinburne. Original music by Richard Baskin. Until our next episode, thank you for listening. You've been listening to The New Feminist, brought to you by Electrocast Media. Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electricast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electricast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So keep listening to Electricast podcasts and hear the culture. Electricast.